For a few glorious moments, the Stone Roses looked like they might lead another British invasion. Instead, they fell apart. But first they made this incredible album, highlighted by the ecstatic eight-minute-long I Am The Resurrection. It single-handedly launched 90s Britpop, from Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. You're listening to Chasing Rolling Stones, and this is episode number four featuring The Stone Roses by The Stone Roses. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode, episode four of Chasing Rolling Stones. This is Kyle coming to you from beautiful Glendale, California, at the base of the San Gabes, and I must say it really is a beautiful day. Uh, about four months ago, five months ago now, I moved out from Florida, Orlando, Florida, humid, rainy, thunderstorm, hot Florida, and now I'm here in Los Angeles. The sun is always shining, the weather is always perfect, and I couldn't be happier. Thank you, as always, for joining me this week as we open up the Rock and Roll Vault and discover another gem of a record from Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list. Now, if you were along for the journey last week, we essentially went out of this orbit. We listened to the electric synths and bass lines from Herbie Hancock's Headhunters, uh, and it was an intergalactic trip for sure. Now, in this week's show, we finally have landed our first rock and roll band to tune into, and I couldn't be more pleased. Now, it's clue time. Did anybody crack this week's coded message from last week? A late 80s bloom introduces a granite flower from Manchester. You could get all the information you need from that statement if you are following along at home and trying to guess week in and week out which albums we'll be covering. Uh, and uh, if you were able to take that statement and hop in your DeLorean, we travel back to 1989, that late 80s, where a granite flower, or you could say a stone rose, was just coming up in the city of Manchester, United Kingdom. Now, I'll admit right away, perhaps you might as well, but uh, I was actually not aware of the Stone Roses before we got to this point at number 497 on our list. But going through the rabbit hole of research, listening to this album over and over again, finding it at my local vinyl store and spinning it quite a few times, I fully believe that not only does it belong on the top 500 list, but it is not a band, more particularly an album, that should be missed in any sense of our rock history head. All right, now, before we begin, let's go ahead and start with my weekly recommendation, uh, my recommendation of the week. Uh, I started this segment last episode, and I really liked it. Last time I recommended The Defiant Ones on HBO, the music documentary, and uh, I'm changing it up this week. I'm going to recommend for episode four a new cocktail I've had the pleasure of trying and trying and trying again uh, quite a few times, actually, last Sunday night during Game of Thrones. Uh, it's called the Toronto, and it's actually a riff, for all you whiskey heads out there, uh, riff off of the Old Fashioned. And I definitely recommend giving this one a shake. But unlike the Old Fashioned, you're going to find some different flavor profiles that you may not be used to. 
So we're going to take the base of our favorite rye. Uh, personally, for me, that's bullet rye. I fancy both bullet rye and bourbon. Uh, and we're going to start with two ounces of that. And please don't let me stop you from adding plenty more than just two ounces. But for our recipe, we'll throw in two ounces of rye. And then a half ounce, quarter ounce, sorry, of simple syrup for sweetness. And our kicker here that makes it a little bit different is the quarter ounce of Fernet Branca. How many of you out there are asking yourselves, what is Fernet Branca? Uh, believe me, it doesn't shock me if you're not used to it. Uh, however, if you are a frequenter of bars, gastropubs, etc., cocktail lounges where they kind of mix up all sorts of crazy stuff, uh, Fernet Branca is probably on their menu these days. It is a digestivo, an Italian word for an after-dinner drink. Uh, and you actually may be familiar with some other digestivos out there, such as Sinar or Averna, but uh, Fernet Branca is a strong digestivo in the category. comes in at 39% ABV, very dry, actually contains 27 different herbs and spices. You're looking at flavors like rhubarb and saffron, bitter orange, and even cinnamon. Um, so it's, it's quite a, uh, a kind of flavor bomb that you drop in there and you kind of pick up all these different uh, flavors. So we, we put that all together. And then lastly, before stirring, we'll add two dashes of Angostura bitters, all that over ice, stirring in a large glass, and straining, of course, into a highball. What I love about this drink, uh, beyond the very boozy nature of each sip, uh, is that it pairs the rye and fernet, the bitter and the Italian, uh, both sleep very well together. And so you get this very crisp flavor profile. You know, sometimes you enjoy old fashions and they're very orange-centric, very fruit-centric, and this is certainly not the case. Uh, you get a much different palette, uh, something that's a, that goes beyond what you typically find in your cocktail rotation. So there you have it, the Toronto, your Chasing Rolling Stones recommendation of the week. Now with all of that out of the way, let's go ahead and start the show. Go ahead and play that music. The story of the Stone Roses starts across the pond with four lads who believe they could be better than even the Beatles. Now before Oasis and Blur kick off the Britpop wave of the 1990s, the Stone Roses debuted with their self-titled album that was born from the early 80s sound of their hometown Manchester, England. The distinct sound was dubbed by the British music press as Madchester, which is a terrible title for a movement that produced bands like New Order, Happy Mondays, and A Certain Ratio. These are artists who merged alternative rock with the acid house culture and other sources like psychedelia and 1960s pop. Very cool stuff. Uh, and unlike their British predecessors, who embraced a very stark post-punk vibe, Manchester artists actually embraced warm, loose-groove sounds that seemed to couple well with another new movement on the scene. And that, my friends, is the rave music, and raves in general. Now, these drugged-out parties, music never stopped, and ravers popped ecstasy into the night. In fact, so high was the blending of Manchester and drugs that for a time, many were calling this period the second summer of love. But... Just like Haight-Ashbury post-1967, rave music began drifting without a purpose, 
and the acid culture was coming down pretty hard. The party ended up being over across Britain, and as the unemployment rate began rising and hope was dwindling, young Britons needed someplace else to turn to. However, as they gazed across the pond to America, it did little to provide relief, as you have hair metal bands, shiny pop, both seeming as anything but inauthentic at the time. Enter the Stone Roses. The band formed in the mid-80s by schoolmates John Squire, who played guitar, and Ian Brown, who was the vocalist. They would end up bringing in drummer Rennie and bassist Gary Moundfield and begin playing the warehouses around Manchester. Uh, They began getting a pretty dedicated following fairly quickly and released their first and second singles by the end of 1987. By 1988, they had a contract and would release single Elephant Stone that would provide the anthem to get the attention of the nation at large. With a hit under their belt, it was time to head into the studio to craft their first full-length album. As Andrew Shaw from The Nerdist would reflect in his Throwback Thursday posting of the album, quote, The album pulls a myriad of sounds together from the dance scene, the rock world, and the psychedelia of the past. The Stone Roses created an album that was urgent, original, and like nothing else that had come before. It spoke to audiences with a tone of such defiance that anarchy and optimism were simultaneously restored into the music scene. 60s Psychedelia was reinvented for the Acid House generation and the release would earn monumental acclaim." Production was handled by John Leckie, an influential British producer who had the opportunity to work with artists such as George Harrison, The Verve, and even helped produce Radiohead's The Bends. In fact, what the band and Leckie ended up creating is actually a callback. It's an old-fashioned kind of album, really. It has multi-track vocals mixed with mellow 60s West Coast vibes. You get guitar references from both Hendrix and Johnny Marr, while also the band restraining with their lengthier instrumental tracks before they go full-on prog rock. For the most part, it's actually difficult to believe the album was even released during this period of time. Figure the end of the 80s, we're transitioning from the 80s hair metal, pop, synth sound to a much more grungier 90s sound. Taking a look at the Billboard's end-of-year Hot 100 chart reflects this oddity with tracks such as Madonna's Like a Prayer, you have Richard Marx's Right Here Waiting for You, and even Fine Young Cannibal's She Drives Me Crazy. The fact that a 60s-inspired experiment landed at a peak position of 86 on the Billboard's Top 200 album chart is impressive in its own right. When it hit shelves, it was critically proclaimed the moment it arrived. Critics and musicians alike declared the importance of the album nonstop, listing it across the board on their best of year list. Commercially though, the album never really found its audience in the US, and the band remained a staple of late night alt-rock radio and a frequent writer of dorm room turntables. After the release of The Stone Roses, the band would work sporadically on their second album, keeping a low profile. In fact, it wouldn't even be until the spring of 1994 when the group came together and finished the second release titled Second Coming. However, it received only a lukewarm reaction, never really ascending to the lofty height of the band's debut. And that's really it. The years go by and the band doesn't end up doing much other than a few high-profile reunion appearances here and there, which is really a shame. And it makes you feel as though this is a classic example of 
a band that comes out with such high expectations really at the peak of their career and they're never really able to replicate that success. In fact, it reminds me very much of a story I heard on another podcast in terms of talking about artists on their debuts. Now this could be a musician, it could be a, a writer, or even a TV show, somebody kind of preparing for the pilot episode. You essentially, as an artist, spend your whole life trying to create this one piece, years and years in the making. You carefully craft it, tweak it, making sure it is essentially the perfect product upon release. Then, once it gets out into the masses, it succeeds, and has this life on its own, the follow-up is such a much smaller window of time where you have to almost achieve the same success or even a greater success. And it's very difficult for a lot of artists out there, you know? It's putting everything you have on the line and then you have to follow it with, you know, six months, not to mention all of the touring and other uh, commitments you have in terms of you know, selling that first batch of material. So the Stone Roses are an example of one of these bands that just couldn't do it, you know? They had such a gigantic debut and it never came together for them later on. Well, what do you say? Shall we take this record for a spin and uh, see how it sounds? Putting it on the turntable, or you can put on your earphones, whatever makes sense to you, you will certainly recognize that the album starts slow, faint even. If the sound dial is between 9 and 12 o'clock, you're really not going to even hear the first track until 45 seconds in. However, before you know it, the strum of guitars and the beat of the drum build up into this crescendo for the opening song called I Want to Be Adored. And as much hyperbole in reading, and even as I said it before, you hear all these connections to 60s pop and the guitars of Hendrix and Johnny Marr. This very first song actually, in my mind, places the album in the middle of the early alt mix of the 90s. You have hard licks and a twinge of raspy vocals. It, it puts me actually in a, in a mindset that this is an early alternative hit. Which isn't a bad thing, it's just, it's not what I was expecting after reading and, and observing everything that I had before. For you American Horror Story fans out there, you actually might recognize this first song, I Want to Be Adored, from the fifth season, or hotel season. I was actually featured in the penultimate episode called Battle Royale. But as we transition into track two, She Bangs the Drum, this is where we start getting some of those late 60s flourishes. We have melodies and harmonies, that describe the feelings towards another. Lyrics like, she'll be the first, she'll be the last to discover the way I feel. We are in peak deep pop affection with these lyrics. Uh, and we are following that with some killer riffs that blend the old and new stylings together in a perfect pairing for 1989. Waterfall, the next track, only builds on these themes as we travel fully back to the 1960s vibrations with Don't Stop a psychedelic gateway that places you into an LSD trip during the height of the summer of love. Wobbly guitar strings are the main focus of this jam fest before we get to vocals halfway through the playtime that seem to fast forward and rewound a few times through a VHS uh, by the time they reach our ears. Then we get to track five, which is called Bye Bye Bad Man. 
and I'll share a story in terms of the album art, but really Bye Bye Badman concludes side one, which is, again, another callback to the earlier times of the 60s. And really, in my mind, if I was building a soundtrack to accompany the great road trip montage of the next buddy comedy coming to the screens near you, I'd I might actually choose Bye Bye Badman. Kind of just has that perfect earworm that would make for a, a great accompaniment on screen. So we flip the record over, hitting with side two, and we actually open with a change of pace. It's really the Stone Roses, Simon and Garfunkel take of Scarborough Fair, titled Elizabeth My Dear. Really is a less than one minute sweet postcard from a distant past. Uh, and sidebar, I really can't wait until we get to some Simon and Garfunkel. I love what they do, um, but that's another time. Then comes, without a doubt, my favorite song off the album. Uh, another, again, based off pop roots with an upbeat rhythm and nostalgia, and that's called Song for My Sugar Spun Sister. Love this song. It's just, it just makes you feel good. Uh, it's just, it's one of those tracks that you just would throw on, fun a playlist where you're just uh, in a good mood. We peek out of this feeling of pop nostalgia and we kind of go into a more mysterious song called Made of Stone. And then immediately following that uh, with another even slower change of pace with Shoot You Down. Uh, and it's really at this point, as a listener, you realize Side 2 is a much stronger collection of tracks, at least in my mind, which you, even in today's current music, you know, the back half of an album isn't always the strongest. It's usually much more front-loaded. And so I appreciate that about this uh, particular uh, album. It's very well arranged, taking you through specific moods with each song. Uh, and by the time you reach track 10, after a break in the action, you really want something that you can turn the volume up on. And that something is, this is the one. And I think the engineer who uh, helped create this album, I'm pretty positive they cranked up the guitar sound levels to wake you up every time that they do, as do the drums. You know, it's practically deafening are the instruments uh, that I have no idea what the lead singer is really saying, other than the title of the song. That's only because it gets repeated over and over again between the breaks of the other members of the band. Now, we should technically finish the album with track 11, which is I Am The Resurrection. This is that eight minute long banger, the intro of our show uh, led in with. In length, yes, the position of this track makes sense to conclude the final product, as does the final four minute instrumental outro. But I would have actually preferred to swap this with the previous track, This Is The One, to really end on a statement and that the album, I feel, might have been better for it. You know, just a certain feeling I get. But, you know, perhaps the length, the outro, and lyrics focused on religion, probably, they'd probably do best serve as the final say from our artist this week. So, um, I want you to take a listen for yourself. Maybe share your thoughts. I'm probably talking rubbish here. Uh, you're probably right. The artists are probably right in ending it the way they did, but my own opinion. Now, for those of you who perhaps are streaming the album from your favorite music source, you actually may have a bonus track that accompanies all these other songs called Fool's Gold. Now, Fool's Gold was not on the original album release, made its way onto many of the remasterings of the album. But don't be fooled by Fool's Gold. It was originally released by the band as a non-album AA side record, 
a single. But I imagine due to the commercial success it found, those making the decisions, those bad decisions, felt it would be best to include uh, for the consumers with purchase of this album on CD in the late 90s and MP3 formats in the late aughts. I am certainly not a fan of it, being not, not the song in general, but just having it placed with all these other songs. It really doesn't have any place to be considered as part of this album. All other previous songs on the Stone Roses debut album avoid the use of dance beats or grooves, something that is way obvious in this song. In fact, the only thing that makes sense is really the name Fool's Gold, because that's exactly what you're getting. It's another track that eventually is disappointing in comparison to the real thing. So what version am I spinning, you may be asking yourself. Well, in my collection, I have the 2014 180 gram reissue uh, that was reissued in Europe, actually, and I picked it up in its plastic sealed version. Uh, this was grabbed at Amoeba Records in Halle, Halle, Hollywood, y'all. Uh, and uh, now, as you may have been noticing, as I've been sharing all week on Instagram, the album packaging itself is an incredibly photogenic piece of art. Uh, if you haven't seen the cover yet, it's a Jackson Pollock influence piece created by John Squire, as who we all know now was the band's lead guitar and backup vocalist. And it really actually should be no surprise that the band took their cue from Pollock, as the artist had actually influenced the Stone Roses in their two previous singles that referenced the American artist in the lyrics. The cover piece is actually titled after track five, Bye Bye Badman. And as the story goes, Ian Brown, uh, the lead vocalist, was hitchhiking around Europe when he met a French man who had been in the Paris riots of 1968. This man told Brown that lemons had been used as an antidote to tear gas. So this not only inspired the lyrics of the song, but explains the prominent position of lemon slices that graced the album's cover. The story also explains the tricolored red, white, and blue paint strokes in the left, top left corner that make up a deconstructed flag of France. Now the back of the cover is a simple black and white photo of the band performing on what looks like an all-white soundstage. But what's uh, great about this photo is, it, I'm sure it was taken at a time where you have the members of the band who are young and really without a clue as to what the influence and expectation their debut album would bestow upon them for the rest of their careers. So there you have it, the Stone Roses debut album, The Stone Roses, which landed at number 497 on Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 Albums of All Time list. And that concludes episode four, The Stone Roses. I want to thank everyone for listening to the podcast. Uh, please, if you have a comment or a suggestion, don't be afraid to email the show at chasingrollingstones at gmail.com, or you can visit the website at www.chasingrollingstones.com. There you'll find my blog with a little more info on each of the albums featured in the episode. Uh, you'll also find photos, links, and sources all listed there as well. And please don't forget, we're also on social. You can find the show at both Twitter and Instagram at the handle at chasing underscore RS. And now that we're at four episodes deep, please feel free to give us a rating and review on the show's iTunes page. Know that a little bit does go a long way, and it would be most appreciated. And lastly, a big thank you to Blank and Kit for the theme song for the show, RSBN. 
as well as Ryan Little for this week's backing music. As always, I'd like to thank Leslie for her support, encouragement, and following my passions. She's a huge advocate for me doing what I do. And of course, a special thank you to Rolling Stone Magazine for inspiring the show. We'll see you next week as we take a closer look at album number 496, which introduces a strong-willed redhead breaking our heart as she tells us it's time to move on. Thanks, everyone, and be excellent to each other. Thank you.